0: past two weeks, I've been staying with Twenta Additive Manufacturing in Nelson, British Columbia, Canada. And it's been quite a treat spending time with Ian Commission and Jim Zimlanski checking out their facility where they're 3D printing all kinds of incredible structures. Um, thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being yeah. here. Well, we're stoked you came. Today I've convinced them to sit down with me for an extended period of time and have kind of a long-form interview-style conversation. So. I guess since we've already had an episode of this, it's one of my more successful podcast episodes, um, why don't you give the audience kind of an update on maybe, Jim, you could tell them about what you guys are working on now.
1: Well, right now we're trying to wrap up a couple of projects. So we've got um, uh, a park perimeter, which includes um, a perimeter for the park uh, mulch and the playground equipment, and uh, benches as well. So we're printing all the parts for that, getting them installed, and we're wrapping that up this week. There's also uh, the Fibonacci house, which we've been working on for a few months now, this summer, so we're also trying to wrap that up. Uh, we've got a, a rock scan that we're uh, printing to that we're wrapping up this week. Um, we're getting ready for the winter. We have a lot of outdoor work to do out at our site, so
0: we've got a lot of, a lot of things like that going on. That's a lot to unpack. back. What about you, Ian? I mean, I think first thing we should, we should Take note of why
2: your first podcast is so successful, and that's because we had the handsome Jonathan serve in that one. And he's not here, so I'm not sure this one's going to be as successful. But um, we've been uh, really kind of pushing um, our uh, fingers into as many different areas in the industry as possible. If you had asked us two years ago what this company looked like now, I would have said, you know, it's going to be a company that develops and builds machines. But because there's such a, a sort of gap of knowledge, uh, from the conventional construction industry to what this you know new construction methods are going to be, that we've really had to become experts in a lot of other facets that we didn't even really expect to. So, from the material side to the architectural side to you know material handling, all of these things, um, you know, we felt that there wasn't really a solution out there that was easily um, applicable or integratable with what we're doing. So, we've had to become kind of fast experts in all that stuff as well too. So, that's kind of, I wouldn't say it's what we're currently working on, it's like what we're continuously working on, so it occupies a lot of the, of the team's time to
1: try to catch up, yep. get acquainted with uh, how things are done and uh, things we haven't necessarily done before.
0: Yeah, I've noticed that as a company you use your own products quite a bit. Um, can you tell me about how you've learned through being kind of your own best customer?
1: Uh well I mean we have a lot of projects out at the site there, which um, you know there's infrastructure there's um, you know landscaping architecture and things like that so um, we've really been trying to use our products like uh, you know, huge variety of potential yeah. prints that we have to do okay. retaining walls um, culverts uh, stairs um, siding.
2: I've always been a big fan of vertical integration anyways. so uh, you know, anything that you're doing that you're not counting on a subcontractor to do for you is just added knowledge to the product evolution anyways. So, even though we you know guys could sort have of come in and done a way better job than us on certain things um, by forcing our own guys to, to build this stuff ourselves, uh, we kind of have a better relationship, I think, with how our product is going to be um, used by people later on. You know, if we are selling to people on the other side of the planet. We want to be able to coach them through their, you know, headaches from from having a bit of experience ourselves. We don't want them to be discovering problems about our stuff that we haven't figured out ourselves already. So.
0: Sure. Right now you're dealing with contractors mostly for the Fibonacci house. Can you talk to me a little bit about how the 3D printed concrete has been involved in that and how the technologies have integrated with traditional. Contractors. Yeah.
1: Well, we really took on this project uh, with the intention of learning a lot ourselves. So originally, we weren't in, going to use any contractors at all, um, and we were going to you know, get dirty, and put the tool belt on. And, uh, you know, we do have some construction experience in, in our past, but uh, to apply it with three D printed concrete has been another whole other challenge for sure. So you know, getting the other contractors that have come in to help us with the the wood framing. For the most part, it's just been wood framing. Eh? We had a guy come in and do our slab to float it properly for us. And,
2: uh, yeah, well, I mean, not, not a lot of uh, other contractors have been called in, no, um, no. but at the same time, you know, we decided that uh, having so much of our team dedicated to things that are not actually part of the 3D printing scope was sort of maybe bad use of our time. So we kind of pivoted away from doing the whole thing ourselves and then started calling in on other people to come in. But it's a pretty—I mean—it's a tiny house, so it's not that lucrative of a contract for people who do, you know, big houses or apartment structures. And so they really just try to slot us in where they can. Sometimes days or weeks can go by before they can like make availability for us. Yeah. So we got to see this really fast, like assembly of this house, like the three printed portion of it. I think we printed and we we're standing and and basically we had a shell structure yeah. there in, in a matter of weeks, like less than a month. And then for months and months now it's been dragging on the completion of it because we don't really have um, the lure
1: to get people to come out there and like bang everything together one after another and get it all done. So yeah, it's, just, know, it's a really busy season right now. Everything's going to freeze up soon. So all these contractors have jobs that they're trying to, trying to tidy up. So to come out for such a small job
0: You said they poured the slab, but really most people... Would think that they would, uh, they did the form work and pouring, but you guys did the form We work did for the stuff. formwork. uh, yeah. He, he just floated it. the slab, actually. only came
1: in for the one day to float the slab of yeah. He has all this travel, uh,
0: so you poured it and he, he, he smoothed just smoothed it out. He did, yeah, yeah exactly.
2: We did, yeah, it. and it's because he's a friend of ours who lives just up the road from KLV, so it was super easy to get yeah. him to come over. And uh, he probably wouldn't have done it if it was just for like. And somebody else, yeah. He did it because you know he likes us and he's pretty excited to see we've got going on out there. So yeah, there's a lot of
0: enthusiasm from the community out there about what we're doing. A lot of excitement. Elon Musk, I think, recently said that we should have baby showers but for businesses, like business showers. So when your friend starts a new business, <laughs> everybody kind of pitches in resources to help them, uh, help them expand. And I've kind of noticed you guys do that. You've been given kind of some resources like the timber frame for the roof of the Fibonacci house. Um, and that guy helping you float the concrete. So it's great to see, I guess, Elon's image of how to start a good business and how to be a good friend of I, was, I was wondering how long it was
2: gonna take for Elon Musk to come up in this podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it
2: seems as ubiquitous as air now in technology
0: conversations. It does get a bit uh, redundant, I guess, at times. That's okay,
2: I mean, I, I like the idea of actually doing some sort of celebration of these different things as they're, as they're launching. Um, For us, for a company, I wouldn't even say we're like legitimately fully formed as a business yet because we are still in our startup stage, right? We're self-financed. We've been doing everything kind of um, from the perspective of being able to switch or pivot to you know the right revenue stream when it shows up. Um, So you know, hopefully, you know, 12 to 24 months from now, we'll actually be able to like zero in on something that actually is something that we can really bring to the rest of the world. Uh, For now, like we're Kind of experts in everything, mm-hmm. so yeah. Yeah. we want to be total experts in the one thing that actually is, is the business model for the company. So,
0: very much an exploratory phase, experimenting still with still more yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, and it's
2: because the maturity, uh, the maturity of the industry itself is just not there. Like it's it's, well, it's not changing just so fast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: we're learning and uh, you know keeping up with what's you know current events mm-hmm. in three D concrete printing world right now too. So mm-hmm. you know another six months a year, it's going to look totally different. Yeah. You know, in, in terms of acceptance and capabilities, right?
2: We've probably got like, you know, the first time something's been done in the world, like every two or three weeks up there. <laughs> so you yeah. know, that's eventually going to stop. You know, there's going to be a critical mass of people doing this kind of experimental work that, you know, we
1: aren't going to be the inventors of everything. So, yeah. but it's pretty exciting. You know, we think of something that we've never seen before, and we just go for it. Yeah, we, we get to we're dynamic and uh, yeah. nimble enough that we can go ahead and pursue those things.
0: We talked about this a little bit in our first podcast, but. um the origins of this company are from a skating company. And I guess, I don't know if I really made the connection as strongly then as I do now, that your experience in 3D modeling and 3D computer-aided design kind of comes from using CNC machines with skateboards. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you guys used to skate together? Well, Jim was actually
2: one of the world-class pro downhill skateboards for a little while. I was a wannabe in the same circle, but never as high on the podium. But we uh, we kind of got into the CNC through skateboarding because Jim was living up in Prince George um, and had an opportunity was it the University of Prince George or another the uh, College
1: there? of New Caledonia. Uh, they, uh, had a CNC machine and they had Mastercam licenses so I started hanging out at the college there, uh, learning, reading their books and figuring it out and the, the other professors there saw what I was doing and invited me to come and teach, uh, teach like three hours a week. But it's fair to say in the early two
2: thousands, like the, the stuff that Jim was coming up with and, and the things we were doing, we were, you know, breaking ground in how you could make skateboards with CNC technology yes. back then.
1: And uh, you know, Ian says I was, you know, world champion, or no, I don't think I was world champion. I was more of a North American <laughs> <laughs> so that'd be for a little while. But it wasn't necessarily my skill set; it was my equipment. I had new, cutting-edge equipment that was tighter tolerance, more aligned, precision uh, machined, and stuff like that. Wow. wait yeah, hold just, on one second. Said, yeah
0: this camera died and this is really uh this is great yeah well you wanted
2: to start stop on the other one too then might as yeah. well to start yourself in another 30 minutes
0: so you were just talking about how He's you're being humble though yeah. So yeah. Sure he had got a so so saying that you know I was doing I was doing I was doing really well
1: uh, in the downhill racing circuit in North America and uh, it wasn't necessarily because of my skill set even though you know I was I was there with the with the guys but my equipment uh, is really what set me apart from everybody else. I would go to the start line and look at everybody else's gear and see that I was going to walk on this race and you win know, <laughs> as long as I didn't make mistakes. Yeah. That's kind of how it went for a couple of years until all the other racers started getting the same
0: uh, high precision. To some degree, it seems like you're still embodying that nature today, where you didn't necessarily go to college to be an engineer, but you have all this equipment kind of at your disposal, and you're an engineer without a doubt. You're dealing with the materials and the equipment, mechanics, uh, electrical, even software programming. Yeah. You've designed your own hardware kind of for the uh, or integrated the hardware together. So, yeah. with the equipment and without the traditional knowledge. You guys are extremely competitive. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say our team
1: is is yeah. all enthusiastic yeah. like this. We love well, our technology. We're
2: backed yeah. by real engineers in our organization now, for sure. Back then, when we were doing this, this uh, skate company, we were perhaps maybe yeah. not necessarily um, counted on the math so much and the um, make it break it philosophy. Yeah. But you know, we've got guys yeah. that have the, the conventional training in our organization now, and especially when it comes to things like uh, large load carrying. Safety factors that are important. Finite element analysis. So we we do have a, a strong team of engineers at Twenta who are making sure that what we build is safe. I mean that's kind of first and foremost in any kind of industrial machinery applications that the people who work those machines can't get hurt. You know, and there's a way yeah. that they can uh, safely operate it and you know obviously generate some kind of profit for the
1: company that that, that bought this equipment. So, so 20, 20 years ago we we were a little more uh, gung ho just going and yeah. trying stuff, but now you know. There's definitely a skater mentality
2: in the organization still. The origins. Um, It comes from, I think, just sort of going for it as opposed to making sure that everything is, um, you know, perfectly perfectly thought out, you know. So,
0: yep. From my perspective, it's been really cool to see that skater mentality come out in the interactions that we've had, especially around your technology. There is a huge difference between the way you guys interact with me as a kind of journalist and a researcher and the way that many of these other companies have interacted with me in terms of, um, I guess their openness to allowing certain footage and uh, talking openly about things that aren't going well, aren't going well. Um, The other day, a print had an issue midway, and instead of asking me to turn the camera off, he kind of just explained to me what was going on and how to fix it, uh, mitigated the problem, you were able to resume the print immediately, uh, exactly from the, the location it messed up. And that's in insight, that most companies would want to hide. I guess some of that comes from the fact that you're kind of self-funded at this point, so you have that freedom. But it's something that I really hope you guys are able to carry forward with you as you grow.
2: Yeah, perhaps it's like uh, in hindsight, it's not very good marketing strategy to show our weaknesses out so so openly like that. But uh, there is actually a real issue in this um, three printing world right now. Is that there has been some. Like, really horribly false claims that were made about what this technology can do from a price point, from a uh, deliverable point, from the timing, and just availability of this technology. And it's made it so that there's a lot of people who think that they can have a house for $5,000 uh, next week if they just phone us up and we send a printer over. And so, you know, being able to make it known that, like, all technology has pros and cons to it. And if the people are aware of what kind of, you know, Failings these things can potentially have, we can have a much more mature conversation with people about how to integrate this really amazing like step forward in the construction industry into their uh, toolbox, but not from like false expectations or from the sort of you know um, like clickbait or hype yeah. that's been going on around 3D printing that's actually I think almost held the industry back. For sure, a, couple, a of, couple of companies process, have got yeah. some big funding raises for it, but you know their investors are going to be a little choked when they find out that like, house is actually $60,000 or you know there's Mm -hmm. these types of like um, hiding truths Uh, it's I know it's really common in a lot of things um, in our current time where fake news is is thrown around as often as Elon Musk's name (laughs) is thrown around but you know if we can educate people at the same time and get them excited about working with us then that's kind of a win-win for us so
1: yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. it'll move things forward for us you know we're not we're not shy so much easier to
2: be honest too. You don't have to cover
0: it I think it's not something that you'll regret, just because beyond, sure, in the short term, exposing your uh, weaknesses is a hindrance, but in the long term, it's establishing a relationship with people who are learning about this technology from you guys and getting a like feeling like they can trust you, which is valuable. I mean, at this stage, it's everybody can kind of trust a, a company that's in a starting up and like funding stage. That's exciting, I guess. I think especially in America, everybody has a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit of at least just getting excited that people are going off on their own and kind of with that skaters rebellion mentality against one of the biggest, oldest industries, construction industry. Um, yeah, it cool. is exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. You guys talk about like it's a company, it's an organization, but at the same time, it's like a, it's an idea, and it's like a.
2: Yeah, but there's <clears throat> there's a lot of people signed on already, and even if we are um, self finance right now, we're a team of like almost twenty people at this point. Uh, we've got people in Dubai, uh, all over Europe, uh, here in North America. We've got a couple of satellites, people doing things. So um, we're attracting a lot of people to want to join us for sure. And I think actually getting back to the honesty thing, that actually serves really well to recruitment as, as a, a method to get people to say coming come and working with us. So they identify a problem that maybe we can solve or, or that they can solve by joining us, where they can see that, like this is not just going to be a, you know a punching um, uh, stamps on paperwork and, and moving things through. It's, it's exciting for an engineer to know that there's something they can solve if they
0: want to join us. So. So for projects that, can you describe the optimal project? So so a lot of people call you and they want a house for $5,000. And those are frustrating (laughs) phone calls, uh, (laughs) maybe annoying you more than robocalls at this point. But what's your ideal call go like?
2: Yeah, okay, so they they frustrate us from the standpoint that, like, um, they they start from expectation,
0: but it also is really exciting
2: that people are, like, visualizing this technology in their neighborhoods. And... We still want them to call us and ask yes, us that dumb question, mm-hmm. but you know we'll try to quickly get them excited about how the reality of this technology can can benefit them. Mm-hmm. But if I was to say there's like an ideal project for us, that would be one where it's like a, a very large established uh, construction firm who is trying to you know step outside of the box that they themselves have been operating in for a very long time. So you know if a bunch of startups are doing business with a bunch of other startups, then really it's almost like there's like you know one uh, shilling that's being passed around amongst everybody, and it circulates nowhere and it doesn't grow. But if there's a way that we can get people who are outside of the 3D printing industry to get excited about this. You know, and I think COBOD did a really good job of getting Perry involved, and uh, ICON has done a pretty phenomenal raise and getting, um, obviously, the NASA and the military contracts coming towards them. So this is like the type of thing that all of us in the industry should be trying to do, is try to pull more people from outside of the 3D printing industry in, uh, because it's going to help everything come up.
0: So, The unfortunate part is the times when that happens and people from the outside the industry really get exposure to it is those fake news times, and those are the headlines that are getting like a million views, and I guess that's breeding the issue of all these people that are kind of have unreasonable expectations. But there's a lot of
2: smart people out there too. For sure, there's people who run big construction firms, guys who do big tilt-up wall buildings or other prefab concrete, yeah. and they can look at what this is, and they can immediately say, okay, there's some... Uh, there's some inherent trappings in that type of technology where reinforcement doesn't seem to be completely solved, or where um, you know materials, their specialized materials hasn't been solved, and they can see how you know this technology is it's going to go somewhere, but it's not going to be this miracle. Uh, um, it's not technology not right away. It's right right uh, being sort of fakely um, represented out there. So yeah. guys that are building big skyscrapers or big apartment um, complexes. They're not looking at this stuff and. and being tricked by any kind of false no. claims or fake news uh, media out there. They're they're looking at it as being, okay, these guys are onto something. And so they're keeping an eye a, on a perfect it. project be one of them coming in and saying, you know, we don't want you to build the whole house or a whole structure for us, but we'd really like you to take on, say, the retaining walls and the staircases and maybe some decorative columns for the front. And maybe if you've got some way to help us deal with this really tricky um, foundation or footing at the back because we've got all this weird bedrock. And they can identify that we've got these specialized skills. We've been working on on trying to come up with a bunch of skills that the construction industry can really see how this technology benefits them. Mm -hmm. But if we want to try to just get out there and replace what already exists, well, it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, it doesn't really
1: make sense. There's a lot of innovation to be had and developed with this technology. So, yeah, looking for people that can, or companies that can implement it or want to experiment with it.
0: Who was the designer of the Fibonacci apps?
2: I think it was all of us. Tim. I kind had an idea first, which someone told me it was actually in a, a video from Jason, which is very weird. So we like to think we're all original, but apparently a lot of people have been thinking about <laughs> you know, Fibonacci yeah. house. But we're a little bit math nerds for sure in our, in our group, and so we thought that would be
1: was really appealing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: But it was, it was, you know, we talked about it in the other podcast, it was to really try to like, screw ourselves up. Like, we wanted to make this thing miserable for us to, to build from a, a yeah. standpoint, and so it not really having easily measurable reference points for a bunch of prefab elements was part of, one of the, the, the stresses we want to put ourselves through on that one so but I think most of the credit probably goes to Tim for like the style and the feel and the shape of it to, to yeah. way the way it coordinated with that slab that was already there and the, the roof angle and
1: whatnot. Yeah so. Tim was challenged with the slicing and the program development for the actual printer. So you
0: know, there's a lot of considerations to be made when you're when you're designing. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier you have like real engineers. To me, anytime somebody's using, anytime you're messing with hardware and you're making adjustments to hardware and the software, that's that's hardcore engineering in my mind. Um, can you talk a little bit about your journey from, I guess, start from the point where you know about the CNC technology from skating. How did you develop the skills you have now with three D printed concrete? Like, where were the were there main hurdles that you oh had to overcome? Well, uh a long
1: story, I guess I would say. I mean, it started with um, it, learning to use CAD software and being able to create shapes and models of things that were very difficult to build, uh, which led me to CNC technologies, uh, learning it myself so that I can take matters into my own hands and actually create these things with my own programs and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, after I kind of got my head around how that all works. Um, started applying it in other industries. Um, there's a timber frame company out here called Spearhead Timberworks and Ian uh, heard about a, a job there and when I, I mean, in between here, uh, I mean we were making skateboards in Montreal and then I came out west here to uh, get ski pass again and I wound up uh, falling in with this company here. And uh, I got with this company called Spearhead Timberworks. They had just purchased a Hundegger which is a joinery, jointery, joinery machine for uh, timber work and uh, my CNC experience qualified me for the position so I started with them uh, when they started that. So working with this company they are an amazing architectural uh, solutions company, they don't necessarily do the whole project themselves, they focus on the frame and the uh, connector hardware and stuff like that. So um, I got to see what was going on in very high level customized homes, Um, uh, you know all the laser cutting our, our own um, connector hardware and uh, having CNC cut templates and jigs and things like that along with this other machine so um, uh, I got to learn quite a bit about what's happening in, uh, in a real you know um, digital manufacturing environment uh, almost in advance of before it came became common knowledge that that's you know that's what it is now. So it was like, like foreshadowing. It was, yeah. You know, in two thousand five, when I first started there, they were already fully digitally manufacturing and um, coordinating trades with the BIM. You know, in, a, in kind of a, a very rudimentary fashion. Um, but they were coordinating and project managing all the other things that were happening. Uh, and so I got to see all of this and how they worked. And um, you know, they were such high level clients. The the money was there. The customization was there. The materials were there was there. It was fantastic to see that and uh, be a part of it, I guess. Yeah. That's how, that's how so I kind of got started with Twente. That's where I left that, that section and started with Twente. Uh, we sort of come from robots. that generation yeah.
2: where you know, the um, digitization manufacturing that preceded everything is obviously what the automotive industry did, which is kind of inaccessible because people who are in the automotive industry are obviously these multi-billion dollar companies, and um, we kind of our, our age category, the ones that we actually did have computers in our uh, classrooms growing up, were the first ones to really see how we can apply this stuff all over the place. And um, Spearhead obviously jumped on pretty early from a, from a construction standpoint. Timber framing is, is, is very different than 3D printing concrete. But, you know, he's already gone through the whole uh, exercise of seeing how conventional building strategies get moved over into uh, digitization. So he brings an experience set to 20 that like, we're, we're super fortunate to have. Yeah, as 20
0: expands, maybe you bring back some of that uh, CNC experience. Oh, absolutely.
1: I mean, it's yeah. just expanding right now using uh, you know six-axis robots and nine-axis machines. It's, it's just a whole uh, another push of the forefront of my knowledge anyway.
2: Well, it's, it, I mean, let's be, be honest. We shouldn't be doing anything with 3D-printed concrete that can be done more effectively with something else, yeah, right? We want to we want to do this for the um, the added value. And if uh, if we want to do like some kind of really cool project, it should include some digital manufacturing of timber frame and maybe some digital manufacturing of glassware or, or windows or other things. Like it's it's we're kind of on this journey started in the three D printing world because it was the one that looked like it had the least amount of, of technological oh, pro- progress or development yeah. so far. But there's no reason why um, Point D isn't going to be doing all this stuff at some point in the future because it makes sense that everything gets digitized eventually. It's just the yeah. right way to build
0: stuff. Yeah. That's something we're very parallel on. I try to keep my focus on automation and construction rather than just 3D printing specifically. I've been very interested in 3D printing, but like you're saying, there's so many ways you can automate different tasks. And so to be material agnostic and to really just look at all of them, yeah. I think that's... Phenomenal character. Um, so you were getting to that's kind of where your CNC experience was, and then you guys kind of get your first robotic arm. Is that you built your first printer from a robotic arm? Well,
2: that's Tim was pushing that. Yeah. You know? So we we actually all sat down
0: before we even started
2: uh, making anything, and we talked about what kind of printers we wanted to make. And of course, Jim and I immediately were leaning towards gantry structures because that's our background, right? And Tim was excited about the six axis um, technology. And really, not that robot arm itself, because they've been around for years and years, but more the uh, control software that we're getting developed in the open source world. And so now, I know it's been repeated over and over in a lot of your things, but the, what the, the Grasshopper add on has done for Rhino, and the ability for people to really um, like collaborate and share across the planet different ways of, of creating code or, or you know robotic or, or any type of motion control. Has been really interesting, and the, uh, the the things he was able to he could show us what he was able to do with his Kuka right out of the yeah. gates. We were like, oh, of course, We've yeah, got it's not the obvious. Yeah. So we'll still, yeah. you know, we'll still bring a lot of our like heavy machinery experience to our, our robot build. So you've seen our, our structure out there, it's the a massive structure, and that's not like conventional six-axis domain. That's really like big heavy-duty machinery gantry structures or other types of, of discrete manufacturing structures that that you know, we, we have in our, our wheelhouse, but those robots are phenomenal. They can pretty much yeah. do anything you ask them to do, so long as the part file can fit into their yeah. usually pretty crappy memory, unfortunately. So we're still not yeah. uh, totally
1: like exclusively 6-axis robots. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of advantages to the Gantry and uh, even the Delta and you know, some of these other, other types yeah. out there, but um, the whole grasshopper thing. For me, I, I, that was like the one thing that I hadn't really been exposed to in my uh, mm-hmm. development up until meeting up with uh, mm-hmm. Twente and getting started here. Tim really uh, yeah. seeing yeah. that grasshopper and the, the capability, and it was like a piece of my puzzle, like piece of my tool set that was missing. Mm-hmm. Totally You're probably fast right realizing
2: you should be doing an interview with, with uh, Tim. With uh, Tim as well. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll get the chance to. Yeah. 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 Well, he's got his little R&D shop in Germany there, that we've been doing some test printing there. Actually, it's been mostly focused on materials testing that he's doing. Uh, So, because it's centralized, a lot of the um, players who are making 3D printable um, mortars are based in Europe, so it's a good gathering point for him to to set stuff up.
0: I never get sick of hearing about Grasshopper. It's such an integral part of, um, I guess, maybe the future of architecture and construction. It's so useful and it I guess some people don't understand parametric design. The people that do don't really need an explanation of it. But to be able to make adjustments uh, at a small scale to a huge drawing uh, quickly is like incredibly valuable. And I guess it would be really cool for either you guys, to, if you ever had time to, or if I ever could on my platform, if someone could make like an instructional video for 3D printing with Grasshopper, that would be... Huge benefit there's so many different ways to go about it yeah
2: yeah there are actually phenomenal rhino grasshopper tutorials on online already like people doing all sorts of things for obviously additive manufacturing but just maybe I could just select them and put the links in one place or something yeah that'd be good yeah some highlights yeah. well you interviewed the parametric architecture guys they tend to share a lot of links of this stuff as well so the unfortunate
0: thing is he he has a whole brand around it online but he doesn't really do parametric architecture himself. It's kind of like the equivalent of like me with 3D printed concrete. I'm not an expert on printing mm-hmm. it. Um, I'm just talking to the experts. It's yeah, kind of But we need guys like
2: you to actually share that information around. I mean, a lot of the
0: inspiration we've got is
2: from, you know, guys like Volker at Vertico and, you know, Cobot and all these other companies are out there, you know, if we are not able to, um, right. like, if they didn't share with the rest of the world what they're up to, we wouldn't really know necessarily the right path that we should be taking so it's awesome you
0: guys are doing this stuff. Yeah. So. A lot of people don't it. know this is actually the first time I was able to see printed concrete in person so all this <laughs> research all right. and everything yeah. I've been doing this is the first time I saw the process live. Yeah that blew our mind. That's Thank an you. honor to, well, <laughs> to show you your first live print. I really yeah. appreciate it and because of that I can say I mean yeah there were for the most part everything went totally smoothly there was a little bit of issues that you guys weren't shy about And the other companies haven't shown me that process. So you can't look down on the issues because 3D printing has issues all the time. Anybody who's done a lot of 3D printing, especially when you're testing a model that nobody's ever printed before, there's all kinds of stuff that can come up. So I think if all of the companies were completely transparent, (laughs) um,
2: <laughs> Dropping the gauntlet. From now on, whenever Jared's there, you gotta let him see him print. let him see you guys print. It will definitely it. go a long way.
0: I don't know. Maybe we can talk the other companies into it now. They can, You guys yeah. led by example, or we'll see. Do you get him to work the shovel? No, we didn't oh, work the shovel. Yeah, man, everybody's gotta work the shovel. I'd be happy to. We've got this
2: young engineer who's been trying to develop a hopper for us, and uh, it's been going on a pretty long time. We're still shoveling. Still shoveling. So, um, yeah, next print, maybe we'll. One of the guys kind of I've pump.
0: met, or he's a yeah, yeah, Jared OJ. OJ, he's working on developing a hopper. He's not really OJ. He's the he's other Jared. Other Jared. There's <laughs> two Jareds Jared. <laughs> around now. They, uh, it's been it's a unique name, Jared, especially with a T at the end, two Ts. But uh, it's been a confusing uh, few weeks a little bit around the office when Ian called for Jared to yeah. two guys, two heads up. <laughs> Yeah. So, you get the robotic arm, and are you responsible for the, developing the extruder head and attaching that? That's been collaborative, for sure. Uh, that's definitely with
1: Jonathan and Tim.
2: Yeah, so we, obviously we have like a lot of development in our own nozzle, but then we also use the patented technology from Valment for our 2K stuff right now. And uh, yeah, and they're a pretty awesome company. They've done some really decent research and development yeah. to get their, uh, their nozzle head to where it is there's uh, we're somewhat constrained. Still, still development. Yeah. We're somewhat constrained by it's a, uh, only uses a single type of material and it's under agreement with Baumont that we only use their material for that nozzle, which
0: we totally respect yes, that.
2: Um, but the, uh, the idea of having to ship material from Austria to Canada has kind of been a bit of a tough thing for us to swallow. Mm-hmm. So we do print our really high end stuff with that nozzle, but then the um, 1K material, we, we're you know, using a lot of late material. Um, and a few other companies out there who are developing uh, 1K materials and it's through all of our own nozzles and I don't know, do we even use the same nozzle twice, Like there's some kind of iteration so every company? We're always uh, trying new things yeah. with the nozzle and it's
1: amazing, you know, it's just a tube with the, the concrete coming out of it, but it's quite, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of features and um, yeah. you know, things you can change and get a different result, whether it's bead width, height, uh, shape, and all yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fluid dynamics yeah. inside of
2: the uh, Something's got a lot of service area for the amount of actual material that's passing through it. So, like, very uh, minor changes in the mix ratio or changes in the length of the the tube that it's traveling through, like all these things, um, they're immediately visible on the part. Yeah. So I don't know if you actually did some close-ups of the Fibonacci yeah. house, but you can see that we've got like completely different print qualities from one day to the next. And you know, we, different parts. You know, we have to do these. Um, hundreds upon hundreds of hours of prints to kind of get all the data to show you know, why is it that today we're getting like a little bit of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, a pulsing effect in our print and then another day we're getting like hooks coming off and yeah, you know, and, uh, So it's it's super complicated what goes on inside the, um, the actual extrusion heads, yeah. and we haven't completely got it figured out. But we can tell from all the other prints out there in the world that nobody's got it completely yeah, figured no, out There's irregularities everywhere.
0: everywhere. Yeah. The honesty will start paying dividends, I think, when you're on your second house or your third house where you've kind of like figured out these nuanced kind of yeah. details and different. Well, we already
2: know that the next house we print um, wouldn't even remotely resemble the one we just printed, no, right? Not at all. No. Like, I'd say almost every we single, want every way single more thing we did there. It's going to be more <laughs> challenging, but yeah, almost yeah. every single thing we did there is going to be done differently. Like, not one of the things we did there we would stick with. Mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah. I think that's it. a big part of the, like, if somebody who's considering buying a printer um, is probably going to want to see a really nice finished product of a 3D printed house, mm-hmm. if that's their, if their main goal is to print a house. Yeah. Um, I'd imagine there's a big number of people that kind of have their finger on the trigger and are just waiting to see the right house and have the confidence that yeah. they could buy and replicate well, it's yeah. the, it. Well, the Holy Grail is the house, of course. I think we've all agreed that,
2: like, completely printing a house from concrete is not really the smartest application of technology. But it's the exciting application of the technology. And, uh, you know, we, we we're talking about dropping the gauntlet. Like, you know, the guys who've been printing houses out there ahead of us basically said, like, if you want to be a player in this industry, you've got to be able to print a house. So we set out to do it. You know, and, like, um, it's, it's been a bit hard to stomach for guys like Tim, who's, like, incredibly... Like pragmatic and and smart designer, he wants to know why we're only we're not only using three D printing for where it best suits the purpose, Mm -hmm. and we're kind of making things difficult for ourselves by printing things that. So this one probably stopped it. Why we're printing things that um, maybe should have been done through conventional formwork or something, and and he kind of goes along with it because he trusts that there is a marketing side of what we're trying to do here, and, and it is important for us to. You know, I mean, we have to play the game of what people want. You know, you can't tell the world what, the what they're supposed to want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So.
0: That being said, the design of the Fibonacci house would be pretty tricky to do with pre uh, precast or with any kind of formwork. So, I don't know, it would be tricky to really get a quote on how much a contractor would charge to form a like that. It would be like very that. difficult, yeah,
1: because the design would change. For, for sure, it wouldn't look exactly like it does if uh, we had somebody else compete in conventional
0: building practices. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but there's already it's not the cheapest but there's value in that that kind of style in a one-off project would kind of be unachievable without with traditional methods Can so, it be made?
2: Yeah. well we know that that house couldn't be made for less than what we made it for if mm-hmm. we were to hire a contractor to come in and do that there's no way they could it for what we did and but I guess so I don't even you know what our exact final costs are because we still have some unfinished contractors yeah. to hire but you know we're still coming way under what it would be to have a conventional building do that structure. But the argument is, if you want a little rectangular box that has the exact same square footage and
1: sleeping space, then you know, we're probably more expensive than that, gonna compete with that at this time.
0: I think Tim is has a similar perspective to me in appreciating uh, function over form and uh, wanting it to be not just beautiful, but practical. And so, a lot of the argument around 3D printing for construction is, Focused on the design possibilities and making it look nice. Um, I think you mentioned like the Jonathan liked the parametric design of the cladding for the building, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of an example of something that you can do 3D printed, but not uh, not really regularly. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe I'm imagining Tim would give some pushback on that because it's not really practical to necessarily do that. But yeah. if you guys decide to go with that, it's not for it's not a practicality thing. It's a showcasing your technology? I yeah, guess. Yeah.
1: Well, there's also a lot of um, discoveries to be made in pursuing things that wouldn't normally be practical too, right? Because mm-hmm. we are discovering a lot of things that actually are feasible while we're uh, you know, trying things that would conventionally be Yeah, I, I think we might have
2: paid Tim to be a little bit boring. That's not the case at all, actually. He's yeah. done some pretty creative stuff for us. Um, I think he's more just of the opinion that um, if there's a uh, added value to doing it, then you should do it. If there's not an added value to doing it, then, then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> move on to something where you can actually do added
0: value. Yeah. So. There's definitely some serendipity sometimes in doing things that aren't necessarily obviously adding value. And sometimes you kind of do something just for fun or you do something a little more on the creative side and it ends up showing you maybe, uh, maybe it's a difficult aspect of a print that you learn can be like mitigated or something, I don't yeah, know. Or utilized, yeah.
2: yeah. Alright, we're not We're not delusional. We don't have our heads in the sand about what um, clickbait plays in a role in a company becoming more known and how well it's going to be yeah. able to engage with its market. You, know, you have to become recognized for doing something. And if all you're doing is these really crazy cool foundation structures <laughs> that people backfill and they're behind dirt and no one ever sees them, you know, then it's going to be a very slow growth, and you're going to try to just open up your market from a grassroots um, uh, sales strategy only. Whereas you know we do things that gets the excitement of the general public, which you know we we, we talk about how much um, we're frustrated by people calling and asking for five thousand dollar houses. That's also created the excitement that you know got us into it. Like you know we we saw that and thought, holy, oh, this is really awesome. Let's let's try to jump into this, and so. We're gonna to have to keep doing that balance of, you know, not necessarily nonsensical projects, but projects that are maybe outside of the scope mm-hmm. of what the technology is best used for, because it, it gets people excited. But okay. then there's other projects, yeah. like so for example, Jim brought up the playground project we're doing here. It's a perfect application for it. Like if you're to get someone to quote, you know, doing a kokanee salmon that's about a third of an acre in size <laughs> and deliver it in under a couple weeks and yeah. install it and have the thing, you know. Visible from space now, like they would, they would charge probably over 100, 150 grand or something like that. And I think we did that project for about 20, 21,000. Wow. So it's like an fr- absolute fraction of the cost of using some of those um, other building techniques. So this is uh, this is the type of application that we want to get people excited about. So
0: it's definitely inherently human to appreciate something that's unique as opposed to just a cookie cutter object. I think everybody kind of likes having uh, something custom tend to agree, yeah. You were talking about some of the benefits of the robotic arm versus the Gantry system, and it made me draw kind of a parallel to um, like the network advantages. I guess I wanted to compare it to like Apple to Google, but because it's open source, it's kind of like that's an Android quality, but the network utility is kind of an Apple quality. Um, I guess having all of the people using robotic arms developing software for it there's all resources online that you can pull from. Whereas a gantry system, I guess there's similar resources to some degree, but it, it's less explored. Mm. Um, I mean,
2: we can say that all robotic arms are equal, but that's not true. There's actually differentiation between them yeah. as well. Sure. So. Yeah.
0: Would you, if you were to say one would be like the Apple or the Google or like a Linux? It's, well, you know, I, mean, I mean, the, the, the grasshopper is really what's kind of
1: equalizing between yep. all these robots because you know each each robot manufacturer has their code and uh, their service team, which is not cheap to uh, to hire to implement custom solutions, right? But grasshopper seems to be the way to kind of get around a lot of it, uh, if that means. The, yeah. The, the conversation well, I also better. think that people can
2: just understand um, Cartesian movements way more. Like there's something, there's like a, like a mindset around the, the way those um, angular motions work, you know, six-axis motion control. It's just a little bit outside of like, the comfort yeah. realm for most, even like your, your experienced engineers. Mm-hmm. There's things that are going on there at the, at the math level that is, you know, some guy who's never done it before isn't going to just jump into it. But I can tell you, if I send a code for a three-axis gantry to some guy who's never done any code whatsoever, He's gonna sit down in front of that thing and he's gonna teach himself how to fix. Code Go dig in, and figure and it out. Yeah. It's it's gonna be like that. Whereas we we really count on like these grasshopper um, uh, translators or post processors to send the the, the kind of G code to the robot so that it, it actually is making the motion we want it to do. But it's really ABB or Fanuc or Kuka or Motoman or these other companies. It's what they're doing internally in their language that is kind of like the. The magic sauce that, that we don't really have access. To. No, nobody really has access to it except for the people in those organizations. So it's pretty yeah. in Yeah.
1: Yeah. When I first came from uh, three-axis, four, and five-axis, you know, um, like metal and woodworking machining, uh, to the sixth axis, I was really unsure how to make it work. And uh, you know, Tim and uh, Jonathan really helped make it. I just kind of trusted that. Okay, I'm going to be able to program. Six-axis robots, when it was really quite a brand new format, i have never seen before. So, you know, once I got into it, it's, it's actually not that difficult, but you know, so, it's quite a bit to learn. Even though no one piece is real, yeah, complex. So we won't put a six-axis stuff. robot in
2: every project. We definitely don't have <laughs> customers who are Cartesian printers is going do more yeah. than uh, adequate work for them. So, it's a, it's only.
1: It's a complexity that you add when it's necessary, mm-hmm. especially with one K material. I would say one K yeah. and Cartesian, in my mind, they kind of go together. Whereas mm-hmm. the uh, six plus plus uh, the two K stuff is really
0: where you. Lets you
1: print with on different planes. Different, different planes, planes leaving, yeah. leaving the plane. Yeah, that's we can do non-planar plane. with Cartesian
2: movements as well too. So, like it's not like you're limited to that, but there's um, elements of kind of reaching into a place you wouldn't normally be able to get to. And of course, you know, Jim has a lot of experience with the 5-axis machines, which is what, you know, a 5-axis machine is basically standard Cartesian movements. It does start to dabble in the angular movements of things, but it's really, like, it's still easy to get your head there, because it's not everything moving in angular motion. It's like three motions that are really just like point A to point B, and then you have these extra angles put on, whereas the 6-axis stuff is,
0: yeah. The tricky part is like drawing a square, Polar coordinates. It's just so, it's yes. like an arbitrary challenge that's so simple with Cartesian coordinates, such a common yep. shape.
2: Yeah. Because there's an almost an infinite number of ways of getting there in six axes. In fact, John's always yes. talking about event horizons, where we're trying to push the <laughs> robot to a spot where the robot does not. Singularity, anything, yeah. Yeah, singularity, yeah, singularity. <laughs> it's close. It's yeah, like yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, the same trying, thing. it's like what are we going to do when we get there? It's almost an infinite number of variables.
0: So what's right? this event horizon? Well,
2: it's, it's generally when the, the the thing is almost extended perfectly straight, and it has to do with some kind of movement in
1: around here. It could go this way or that way. It can't decide. So you have to you have to kind of make it go around it, avoid these singularities, avoid these uh horizons.
0: Oh, okay. So the printer, I guess. Maybe because of the wiring or just because of the way the joints are set up. it can't do many circles in a row. It can only do...
2: No, no. It's actually about the command structure of the six angles that the robot has to go through in order for it to actually be at that spot where it wants to be. It's, basically what it's doing is it's trying to calculate the best path that it should take to do that thing, and it almost hits an infinitely equal yeah. number of ways of doing that path, and then it's screwed up. Where's our Cartesian robot? Is only one to go. Mm-hmm. You can't choose how it gets there.
0: Is that a G-code
2: problem? Yeah. I think it's just the nature of um, the way the six axes work. We, you're kind of asking the wrong guys. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. All I know is that we need to avoid uh, singularities, which is where things could be going yeah. either way, but they kind of
2: they're going to cause an event horizon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Something's going to explode. <laughs> We're going to get sucked into a black hole.
0: It's an interesting, it is really hard to wrap my head around the six different joints moving at once, and like, I guess a, a Cartesian system, I built a 3D printer. It's
2: kind of funny, it makes like a shutter sound when it stops, eh?
0: I was trying to record 4K video, but because the SD card was having some issues, it wasn't recording consistently. Please excuse the brief pauses in sound while I fix cameras a few times throughout the podcast.
2: That's the that show. Is. It's actually like, uh, giving you like a cue, though. It's cool. Otherwise, you wouldn't know it. This it would
1: thing be annoying be, in the audio from, from the other This cameras. thing may have shut off. I thought it did shut off. Oh, really? There's no, no red
0: light. do a quick check. It's good, but I'll reset it.
1: Vent Horizon. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new one for singularity. <laughs> 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 really quick. Yeah, right computer brain explodes. <laughs> Where is the restroom? On just the left. Third door there.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I get uh, some of my terminologies from watching too much Neil deGrasse. It's, it's, the it's the same Same kind of
1: uh, <laughs> feeling, though, when you're approaching it. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>, no. no. <laughs> yeah.
2: And he's definitely have to go and do an interview with Tim so he can redeem himself
1: for all this. Yep. Yep. I if we're not uh... <laughs> <laughs> just
2: passing the shining button. him in a bad light because he's. Kind of stoked to see that retaining wall finally get put in. Those Looking parts were really sitting there for a while. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's really nice to see it
2: happening. Definitely need a coat of that stuff, eh? And I was six thinking six about it. The fish six. sign. Um, can we? I, I don't know why we didn't yesterday. We had all that wet mortar. But I'd actually like to fill the crack the whole way with wet mortar, and then get somebody maybe with a yeah, toothbrush to, to fill that one crack.
1: Yeah, we should do that.
2: And then, uh, yeah, maybe before. you got to pick up the spark plugs for Sebastian plugs and wires, okay. it's an order waiting at Lordco, and then um, maybe go and pick up a, an extension so that we can, so we can drill it. Drill the rest of the design.
0: Of the you guys ready for a beer? Yeah, a beer, sure. Before they get warm? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, ma'am. Thank you. One of the luxuries of doing this in person is I can uh, convince you guys to drink with me. Cheers. 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 So, how long do you anticipate before one of you is living in a 3D printed house? Summer. Yeah. This summer? Jim this summer to. coming up. Yeah.
1: Yep. Well, I don't have to, but that's the goal. <laughs> I would really like
2: to. He wants to keep his wife. <laughs> he has to live in a 3D printed house last <laughs> summer. <laughs> Your wife really wants a 3D printed out. Well, wants a house, yeah. Just um, so. moved her into a 1907 wooden shack on the side of the hill for temporary. Yeah, we moved yeah, and closer and to uh,
1: the site there. Yeah. And it's an old, cold house with limited space. So. Yeah. So, 3 floors. Yeah, I'd really love to have something to live in this summer. Uh, even considering doing some printing with the tilicum, uh this fall, if I can pull it off, uh, just like mm-hmm. some landscaping. Did you see, see where his site is? I don't think, I, think so, I did. So Jim has that
2: chunk of property that's like right behind the 40 by. Just uphill. From 40 by right. is what we refer to the R&D shop. Mm-hmm. It's because it's 40 feet by 40 feet. Which is an insanely small shop for us to be working in. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> Very as small, soon as the building yeah.
0: was standing, like, ah, oh, what have we done? Is your lot past that footpath with the bridge?
1: No, it's well, uh, straight uh, uphill from the workshop. Okay. Uh Stones through He's, he's got a 25 have a years of Fibonacci house basically. It's, right. a, for that. it's so, a great view. Yeah, it's, it's just cool. cool. uphill. Yeah. So we've actually had uh, Selkirk College out there. and uh, They've scanned it for us with their geosign equipment. So we're just waiting for some processing to have a look at it and see uh, some strategies for, for printing and get, get started.
0: Yeah, the, the bedrock printing that you guys are doing is really unique. Um, so you took a 3D scan of some of the bedrock on the land near your facility, and I guess can you talk a little bit about how you made a model from that? Or well, yeah, I mean it's
1: actually quite a simple process once everything's in place. But there's a scan. Uh, there's a variety of different scanning methods out there. Uh, it was a lidar scanner that, that built our model. Uh, I don't know what the processing software was that created the mesh from those points or that data, but. Um, we took that mesh, uh, Tim took the mesh and uh, created parts that interfaced with it, uh, and then sliced it and printed it in
2: a... This one's for kind example. of cool, it was in collaboration with Selkirk College here, which is a local school in Nelson, and they're just trying to get their digital manufacturing department off the ground, so uh, it's pretty nice for them to come out and bring some of their um, up-and-coming alumni, I guess, to yep. um, get a feel for what's going on with this, this application. Uh, we also did it last year for the um, the Big Five Dubai Show. We presented that we were doing this. Uh, we call it um, uh, topolo- uh, topography optimization because the the big buzz in 3D printing, of course, is topology optimization. So we wanted to kind of play on that a little bit. But it's definitely uh, a technique that is going to, I think, revolutionize building in uh, hard to get at areas or areas where access to excavation equipment or Dynamiting is just not a really uh, good or viable option, and it's far, far less than. intrusive. Also, mm-hmm. like it, it allows us to print in cool areas that um, doesn't—it's not going to cause a lot of damage to the area.
0: So you said you said interface with it. Can you can you describe what that means in more colorful language? Well, the interface. So you've got a rock that's
1: raw, natural. It's uh, broken. It's fallen apart with weather. It's eroded, and uh, rather than try to so the interface part is between that and a structure that we want, of it, we want to see or realize. So something to go between. Um, so we'll print something that very closely matches the surface of the rock and that has another feature that's also printed in it that can interface with the house or the structure or whatever it is we're trying to, trying to produce there.
0: So to build on that site without that interface, what would you have to do to the bedrock? Uh, well, the only thing that we have to do is well, we
1: clean it, we scan it, uh, without we drill that it process. It. Okay, so so what's conven- the conventionally, <laughs> well, yeah. well, conventionally, you um, you can do the same process with formwork. Uh, you can take plywood or form boards, and you can scribe it and cut it and uh, make it fit and seal it so that it won't leak. Uh, you can also blast it or sculpt the rock so that it's more favorable for the conventional uh,
0: forming and pouring uh, techniques as well. But it preserves by Integrating the the 3D model and printing something that fits exactly to the formwork of the rock, you're able to pre-print per yes. basically perfect formwork for, yeah. for the mm-hmm. print with exactly. just a little bit of a, I guess, finesse when you're pouring the concrete. in.
2: Yeah, I mean, so we this week we try to do like a really challenging surface, like one that add like a lot of uh, shape regularities. Yeah, and. The, what came out of it was that we had to basically grind off a little bit of the scalloping effect you get from when because um, we did only do 2.5D for that one, we didn't actually do a true 3D uh, tool path, mm-hmm. I don't think, or was there some very bead thickness on that one? Uh, no, it was all two It was all 2.5D. Two and two and so it basically means that like, when the, the printer switches directions, you've got these spots where it almost creates a little bit of a staircase, mm-hmm. so we had to hit a little bit of that off with the grinder. Just, yeah, just minor minor touch-ups to, uh, so.
1: to make it fit perfect.
2: Yeah, yeah. and you guys you want a fifteen millimeter bead or ten millimeter bead thickness on that one? Uh,
1: the height is like seven and a half. Yeah. So and the width is uh, thirty-two. Okay, so it
2: would have been fifteen millimeters tall for each of its scalps, right? Because yes. Yes. was returned return, yeah, double. Which for that surface is a lot. You know, yeah. we could probably done something. Um, I think in hindsight, so I'm pretty sure you can show pictures of that we should have gone and done true 3D paths on everything, but the scan that we got actually had a bunch of vacancies in it, so the, the mm-hmm. scanner. There were some holes in the mesh that we received, yeah, so, it was so, yeah.
1: and, uh, so we had to make some assumptions about some of the distances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were a similar. couple of interference uh, yeah. spots there, but which I mean, just ground off.
2: The whole project's all in, we're about maybe six hours worth of work, yeah. and there's the table stand in there pretty much now, so yeah. like, it was super fast to do it. It was kind of um, a rush project because Tim has to present to um, the, like, there's a, a, a kind of an elite architectural gathering called the BEAM uh, uh, the conference coming up, and so mm-hmm. he wanted to make sure that he had some you know, evidence to the claims. We've done a bunch
1: of theoretical uh, yeah, writing on this, this thing. And, uh, and uh, we've done, done we've some seen, samples, right, but we had to put proof of, put proof of concept here. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the idea yeah. that this, I mean, it's a small mm-hmm. example, but to do a full house or a larger landscape yeah. uh, you know, project, that we can scan the entire thing and have dozens of parts or tens or hundreds of parts that are just brought aside, mm-hmm. to site, placed and filled and filled. this. So this is a classic example of
2: how 3D printing is gonna blow other industries on the water to try to do comparative work. Right? This is something that is a unique application
1: that only 3D printing
0: how budget friendly
1: is the scan? Very. I mean, it's expensive. The equipment is not cheap. It's tens or hundreds. Of That's if you're running LiDAR,
2: but pixel optimized. Yeah. Starting to doesn't gather, and you've got ways of uh, getting three um, D data that doesn't have to be expensive.
1: But the the equipment's available, and the amount of time that you need that equipment is so short that the price comes down significantly. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, the guys came out uh, from from Selkirk there and. There was more talking and setup and discussion than there was scanning. Yeah, it's sure. like a four-minute scan. Like drone footage, you just put it up there and it's like four minutes. So, so you know, if, if you uh, if it's $150 an hour to rent someone with the equipment, you can do a lot of
0: scanning in that time. That's a reasonable price. The equipment's like, I've seen Matterport has a LiDAR system for like $20,000. Oh, you yeah. can even mount it on one of the Boston Dynamics robot dogs, <laughs> and then it'll do the scan for you. Yeah. And you're not even getting into
2: the far over the lake or the LIGO one. 000, so, you know. Yeah, that one's really high. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, expensive equipment, but uh, uh, you don't need it for very long. And uh, it's, it's quite fast. Mm-hmm.
2: But we think this technique is going to revolutionize home construction, at least in parts of the world, like here in southern Germany, where Tim is, you know, trying to build into the Alps or to build into the Rockies or you know, the Himalayas. These places have really challenging build sites. And this technology is going to make yeah. it a lot more appealing for people to mm-hmm. take on housing projects that may have been cost prohibitive to do it yeah. conventional methods. So, so, and
1: uh, once we bring the printer to the site and we're doing this live printing to the rock, office. Yeah. The,
0: the obvious next step. Live yeah. printing to the rock, so the printer is live adjusting, no. like the bed is the... I thought
2: until next week though. We gotta finish. Well, we'll we print the printer, to bring the printer. Bringing first. the printer to the
1: site, however it is, whether it's uh, moving or not, while it's there. Um, you know even indexing, having the printer in the spot, reaching what it can, and and moving and resetting up. It's going to be challenging. Well, we'll be For able sure. to. We'll be able to print bigger things that we can't transport anymore mm-hmm. as well. Right? So, yeah,
2: that's an awesome debate. The in situ versus prefab printing has been. Some companies have clearly stated they're going to go one way, and other companies clearly the other way, and phenomenal results on both sides. Uh, we we like to think there's there's the best both, application yeah. for both worlds, yeah, sure so we will continue to
0: pursue both techniques for printing. Just like Cartesian and uh, robot, right? yeah, polar. So. so for in-place printing, will you build a temporary structure around the printer? That's going to depend on our materials and the site conditions. I mean, ideally we can do it in the rain, but
1: you know, that's there's a lot of challenges. So you say ideally in the rain well, I mean ideally the technology can allow you to okay. yeah, I want we, we want to have all the ability to get to that. Level. Yeah, but I mean for now uh, you we know, conditions permitting uh-huh.
0: uh, we can do it without cover.
2: You got to treat yourself in some, some new SD cards, man.
0: Yeah, I don't know why this would, took like 30 minutes of footage mm. of the printer yesterday. I don't
1: know. Mm. Yeah. So ideally we'll be able to print in situ with and without
0: covering well. Yeah, that you'll be uniquely positioned to have the debate of in situ or facility printing. I would imagine it's just going to be uh, different pros and cons for each one. I think so, too. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll get back to the same argument. Are you doing something just for the sake of doing it, or are you doing it because of the added value or the added benefit? I think that's a, will be the, I mean, that's kind of the determining factor to everything apart from cost, right? You know, cost has always been the number one reason why people do of a certain style um, in any industry, whether it be construction or something else, but um, you know if you can create value added and the cost component to it is in line with that, then that's going to basically be the only way people will do things moving
0: forward. That's kind of a good segue to a philosophical question of why are you guys doing this? <laughs> well, we want to change the
1: world and uh, have a good time at yeah. the same time. You know, we want to improve things for everybody ourselves yeah. and the others around us? Get, I mean, little you've little been excited. up to Kootenay Lake Village, you've seen the space.
2: And we thought that something that, that, a place that cool required something done to it equally cool. You know, so we kind of feel like there's an obligation to make some really awesome prints out there, some really cool uh, architectural structures. Um, but, you know, the reason why we got into it originally is because of our long history of digital manufacturing. Yeah. Um, Jonathan and I were living in the Netherlands and we both basically got, well he quit, I got fired, and we had to move on to something new. And uh, you know, having a strong background in, in industrial machinery can apply to any industry. Just because we're working in wind energy doesn't mean that we uh, couldn't try something else. And we looked at how the 3D printing industry was really at its infancy with this stuff, the construction of size machines that it was kind of a no-brainer for us to jump in. I, we got duped, too. We thought you could build a house for 5000 bucks in 24 hours. So like, <laughs> that seems <laughs> like a good way to make this cash. <laughs> Give it a go, guys. Give and it yeah, a go.
0: The more we look at it, the more reality- So the of frustration of all those phone calls is seeing yourself in the mirror a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> we're polite. We know what it feels like to be that excited. Yeah. Sure. And, and we're always listening,
1: because sometimes these people who want these you know, inexpensive, cost-effective houses have really great ideas mm-hmm. for how some angles to be considered. So there's a lot to be learned by listening to these requests too. Is there a mission
0: statement?
2: In the company? I think we had one on our website from like, because we had like a first founders meeting. We all met in the Alps and sat down and decided what we are going to be as a company and how we want to represent yeah. ourselves. And it was fairly altruistic. Um, we have quite a lot of ecologically minded people in the company. Um, for me, one of the main things was I wanted to design, I wanted to be able to give machinery to so people they could design houses that require way less uh, consumption of uh, disposable furniture. That was kind of a weird little niche in there, but I, I just recently uh, moved a couple times and my daughters would drag me into Ikea and we'd buy this landfill, bring it into our house and then try to move it and it wouldn't move even once and then it would be, the be in the landfill. And so um, I thought that, like, as a machine designer and a company uh, with the philosophy around reducing the amount of landfill that goes out there, was kind of uh, the core I wanted in the mission statement. I don't know if it's there. Um, there's definitely um, Adam, our director of operations, is really big on affordable housing and trying to make sure that everybody has a safe, uh, clean place to live. So that's in our mission. Yeah, but you know, well, ecologically pro- sensitive yeah. too,
1: right? We want to do uh, work with materials that are not bad for the environment. We're interested in geopolymers and um, insulation that's uh, you know not not spray foam. <laughs> you know, we've, I mean, really that's it's where we want it's to go. Quick and convenient. Well, yeah, it's quick and convenient, but it's not good for the environment in the long term. Yeah, that's good. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, opportunities in 3D printing to expand the cavities
0: and change things so we can use other materials uh, in larger volumes that are more friendly. I like the way you put that of having an object and seeing it as a landfill kind of before its life has expired. <laughs> because you can kind of Certain objects you just know have a limited lifespan, especially if they're plastics or something like that. Um, it's not meant to be something permanent, it's something disposable. So, to have that foresight, at the end of the day, time is such a constant.
2: you never had that sensation when you're like walking around at Walmart that you just walk around in the dump?
0: Yeah, well, that's it totally crazy. I like just you waiting for the, the to circle around and
2: like push me out of the way because they're trying to get it. Like all, all the dump bears the, coming the, in. The, the 75 pound bag of shrimp. That I don't
0: consider myself like super environmentally oriented but it's definitely I like I like animals and I like nature and I appreciate the environment so preserving it is important to me on that level. And I guess like plastics is something I really hate. So people that's why I try to avoid being associated too much with three D printing because most three D printing is done in plastics. And anything plastic is not something Want permanently. Like mm-hmm. in a home, wood, metal, concrete even, these are things with a permanence. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But we have to be honest,
2: every single thing humans do, there's a cost to it. And everybody knows that concrete is one of the major contributing factors to CO2 emissions out there. So we have a moral responsibility that if we're going to start introducing concrete into an area that maybe would have had a lower CO2 um, uh, footprint from say using like stick timber construction, that we're bringing some other kind of value added that will make it so that this thing does actually have a strong environmental um, uh, outcome or influence. And so, uh, Jim brought it up earlier, talking about the wall cavities um, side of things. If you were trying to make a house out of conventional stick construction and you want to increase your wall cavity to get your um, insulating properties, we actually require more timber. Whereas, if you're doing a hollow wall construction out of 3D printed concrete, you're now actually able to build a larger structure, conceivably stronger, and it's using less concrete than, say, a similar construction would if it was made out of just conventional more. So in these areas we can actually um, you know, recognize, you know, how it is that our, our industry is perhaps, you know, being big turds to the whole, the whole planet and kind of minimize how much of the yeah, impact kind of it minimize is. minimize and optimize things. You know, so. and like, we definitely don't want to greenwash anything we're doing. We have to be, you know, very honest that, that the stuff we're doing does have an impact. But if we don't have it at our core values to, you know, constantly be working on how that impact can be better, be, yeah, then uh, then we're not in it for the right reason. Yeah, I guess the reason I don't
0: dedicate so much of my energy to those ecological things is because it's too difficult to really figure out where the the problem is. Like people will say that batteries from lithium ion batteries are worse for the environment than the energy you're saving from gasoline or whatever in the solar panels, the silicon or something is like terrible to Mine, there's all these different explanations and reasons, but for printing, like you were saying, it's twice as strong, and or it's thicker and twice as strong. So if it's stronger, I don't know if you even said twice, but (laughs) if it lasts twice as long and has 50% more emissions to build, the net result is less emissions because you have an object that's going to... Yeah, Yeah. uh, Yeah. we have to be
2: careful uh, not to pretend to be the experts in that math, though. That's the thing. And there's a gazillion ways to slice things, most of what you hear out there, somebody has an agenda before they set out to even do the math. So they've done the equations in a way that I kind of paint the story there and back yeah. up. And so it may sound like we're doing a little bit of that as well, too. And I apologize if that's how we're coming off. But the goal would be that we actually genuinely are uh, not necessarily recognize that we're better than those other things, but in the steps we're taking, that we are actively trying to reduce what our impact is. I and mean, that's really all you can do. Uh, you see arguments all the time about you know whether green energy is truly green because you know what what kind of damage do you do to flood a valley to make a hydroelectric project or what damage are you know all of these uh, wind turbine blades yep. that they don't recycle very well. Mining for resources. Yeah, so. mm-hmm. But one thing's for certain you know things that we do that are moving us collectively towards the direction of actually giving a shit about that is the right thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: if these renewable energies are getting like you know. Uh, Land-based by the people who are coming from the petroleum industry or conventional industries, then it's not necessarily about what's being accomplished, but the motivation of people who are doing the land basing And so that was always going to s- sort of sully the waters on on you know, what people believe or don't believe about what we're doing or what other industries are doing. So um, yeah, this is you can always focus on what's
0: important. Yeah. I mean, one easy example is the formwork that can be eliminated. So if you have custom formwork that's going to be used once. And then thrown out or disposed of. Even if it's recycled, the energy put into recycle it and make it a reusable resource again mm-hmm. is going to be huge. So to eliminate that entirely from the process, there's got to be a huge saving somewhere. I mean, well, some things are obvious, right? Some things are a little bit more difficult to determine whether they're green mm-hmm.
1: or not. But for those kind of cases, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. Take advantage is, of forward
2: that. is definitely a great example of how you can um, reduce waste, like the visible waste. A lot of forework does end up in landfill. But that's, that's not that, but that's not to right. say there's other companies out there who are in the formwork business who have actually missing. identified some techniques to reduce their waste. Yeah. So, you know, one of the major players in 3D printing right now is Perry, because of their investment in Cobod, And they actually, like, almost revolutionized some of the formwork strategies that have gone on in Europe because their formwork is lasting way longer than just their conventional sheets of plywood. So, you know, you can still, like, every party in whatever industry in can participate in being less of an impact or you know, having less of a detrimental effect on things. And so, you know, our core mission statement, whether it be in line with a bunch of other uh, organizations out there, it should still be comparable to what other organizations are trying to do because we all have a responsibility to not screw this up for, you know, the people who have to come after us.
0: Especially for your company, it seems like it's an insurance policy for an impending doom in the labor force the construction labor force is smaller than ever and it's not, there's a demand that isn't being filled and that's made evident by all of the people who are trying to get work done and they can't find the contractor, it's taking too long, or the contractor has too many other deals, they're too busy. No, yeah, Never mind the shutdowns
2: for pandemics that make it so low cost labor. Who would normally travel mind into maybe, your country yeah. to bring money back to their families, they're not even able to come in and do that work anymore. So you know, yeah, definitely robotization is gonna kind of smoothen the the peaks and valleys of the construction
0: workforce? I don't even think it'll decrease the income that the construction workforce is getting because there's a load of demand that just goes beyond supply. And at a certain point, you can only charge so much for labor. And so I could imagine a world where maybe it just decreases the schedule and the amount of money that you see these contractors earning isn't going, I don't picture that decreasing. It's been increasing uh, even through COVID Con- construction bills and budgets are up more than they're expected and more than uh, these months last year. I, I
2: think I agree with you, Adam Sent. I think you'd have to have a real economist sitting across <laughs> me at the table to actually <laughs> say whether or not that's sure. true. But it does kind of seem like, you know, that the, the work shortages that exist already were going to happen regardless of whether there's a pandemic or other reasons that people can't get to you know, the job sites. Um, the thing that we hope, you know, digital manufacturing can contribute to the construction industry, starting with 3D printing, is that jobs finish on time and on budget. Because right now it does not seem to be that like people can give a shit about that. And it's actually insanely it's frustrating yeah. at how poor so many contractors are at predicting what the budget's going to be and what the time frame is going to be for them to complete. And so much overages are uh, allocated towards just poor coordination of the tasks that have to happen in the order they happen. You know, if you have, like, a fleet of robots doing your work for you, I mean, it's a note monitor before you push play. You know, they're going to... Um, you know, if, if you you're, know where they're going to start... If your writer tells you it's a 3 minute and 47 second print, it's a 3 minute and 47 second print. You know, if a contractor says, I'm going to have your shingles on next week, you know... You may that, or may not have the shingles on <laughs> next week. More likely they'll be on in 3 weeks.
0: It's weird how it's so normalized for construction projects to be over schedule and over budget. Yeah, it's A lot of people use it as a strategy to win jobs by bidding low. It's yeah. strange that
2: there's such a tolerance for it. In wind energy, because I spent many years in wind energy, if we are over by a day on our deliverables, holy smokes, they would want to be heading. Right? <laughs> because, penalties. You know, Oops, if, we, if, we're, if we're affecting the shutdown of a production facility that has, like, their, mandatory throughput that they need to hit for their shareholders to see their quarterly earnings where they are in their, in their projections and we somehow contributed to that being off by one, one and a half percent, like we we're hearing about it, but the construction industry, yeah, it's like these guys it's are like hitting a wild card. 150, 200 percent original budget and Hundred and fifty to two hundred percent of their time estimations, and everyone's like, "Well,
1: that's the yeah, And then business. they're on to the next contract. There's no shortage of work for these yeah. guys somehow. Nobody's funny. But They're all doing it together. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard to blame them too because there are a lot of unknowns when they get into these things. And you know, it's what uh, one one person does on the know. site that can interfere with the other contractors. And you know, it's, it's not always. That I different. think it's, it's a shortinger's your cap
0: thing. I think yeah. if you look at it, you're causing the problem. There's so many excusable <laughs> problems. And there's so many holdups. Like, if the electrician doesn't come on the right day, then the carpenters can't like board can't up finish, the walls. Yeah. And there's so many like, there's so many logical explanations that I think that they just have this expectation that they can give excuses, and the excuses are even some of the ones that aren't so serious are taken as similar severity almost. Mm-hmm. And there's like an ex- There really is an expectation that contractors will be over-schedule and over-budget. Yeah. It's so deeply ingrained in, in the system. Oh, but there can
2: also be BS. So, you know, we do have that timber frame structure that we built for for our R&D shop. And we hired a local contractor to come in and do that. And I asked Jim, very you know, just keep track of the hours when the guys show up and when they leave. And they were billing us for way more hours than they are actually there. And you challenged them on that and they're like, well, we got out there and we realized we didn't have this material and so we had to stop there, um, so even though our guys went home at 2, we had to charge for a full day because you know we, we scheduled a full day for us to be out there. And then you ask them, well, aren't you the ones responsible for getting the material out there? And was like, yeah, yeah, but the thing is the guys at the shop, they didn't have any. And somehow they can always pass their errors and their inabilities down onto the final customer. So that everybody in the something. chain gets paid what they're supposed to get paid, except for the final customer who Pays way more than they should have, and they waited way longer than they have to. And you know, and maybe it sounds a little bit disgruntled, uh, disgruntled around this subject, but we hope the digital manufacturing construction industry smartens all these guys up a little bit because they totally deserve to make a fair wage, and they totally deserve to actually, you know, feed their families and have good lives and buy themselves boats and, and skidoo's or whatever they want to spend their money on. But they've got to get there through honest means. I mean, we, you know, in every other industry. Staying on budget and staying on time is, is essential for those people to get paid. Why is the construction industry not functioning in that domain? I don't really understand. So
1: there was one example I learned when I was at uh, Spirithead, And we were ordering glue lamps, uh, like 40, 50 feet long. And when they arrive, they're one, two feet longer than they need to be, so we have space. And uh, we had this one guy from Bavaria who started working with him, and he's like blown away. That there's that much excess, and he says in Europe, anybody who's working on margins that allow an extra foot or two of a blue line is is not competitive, and they won't get the contract. So they're working on much tighter margins and uh, less excusability. It sounds like over there than we are here. You know, they would have one one or two inches of, of mm-hmm. extra, and he just couldn't understand why. We order these glue lamps that are a foot or two over, and then they show up incorrect, and we still order from the same company again. We, you know, whereas he said back home they would never ever go back yeah. to that company again for a mistake like that that puts them out. But that's not just Bavaria; that's Europe as a well. whole. Yeah. Or at least
2: the majority of the, uh, the economies in Europe are functioning on, you know, make sure that tighter margins. you've and understood what it is you said out to do before you agree to doing it.
0: There's less allowance for excuses. Yeah. Passing it back, so to speak. I wonder what government regulation leads to that kind of mentality. I don't know. Is it government? I don't know. Yeah, I would almost say it's more uh, capitalism. 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 Well, people want their
1: value for their money, right? And so they're just a little bit more expecting.
0: Yeah, I mean, my instinct is that somebody who would order an extra foot in the past, there was an issue where they needed an extra six inches. And so that extra six inches may have cost days of the schedule being a much more costly problem than just buying the extra foot. And so mm-hmm. that's probably the logic that that person made when they uh, kind of ordered an excess. And I think that's traditional logic. But it, it should be by decision, it's
2: also not by default. You should be deciding to be doing that. It shouldn't be by accident that pass out of
1: I think it's also, uh, in this particular instance, it's the manufacturer of the glue lamp likes to go to even increments. So we go up to the next increment, sure. and it makes their production uh, more streamlined. Well, track of which one's an inch or two longer. They've got them all 40 feet. Rather than keep track of which one's the 39 foot six.
0: Okay. I would be interested to see some study that looks It's like a top-down. Uh, I've never comparatively looked at the construction industry of Europe versus America.
1: They're way ahead of North America. It sounds it like it, yeah. Especially on prefab
0: I with uh up north they have some incredible prefab and insulation innovations that are like, super cutting edge. You definitely you've got to go over there. We're worlds apart.
2: I mean we, we are a Dutch company and we actually count on the reputation that the Netherlands has for you know being strong in this area for our relationships in the Middle East and, and South America and, and places like that. Um, not that people have a problem with North American standards but for sure there's a sort of understanding that there's Leeway that maybe is um, a lack of efficiency. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So we're 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 trying to hold ourselves to European standards, even in our uh,
1: North American work.
2: And we're definitely we're not trying to insult the way business
0: is done around here no. at all. It's just a, a fact,
1: fact that I've seen it, it. Yeah. Yeah. there's a little bit more allowance here for mm-hmm. delays and uh, budget. Yeah, I don't know if we
0: talked about this in our other podcast, but I think a lot of the innovations that Europe, especially Northern Europe, is so good at achieving in construction. Stem from their short construction window because mm-hmm. of the frost line in the winter. They have to build uh, quickly when it's warm enough. So by yeah. doing prefab, sometimes in a facility, uh, modular units, they're able to fit those kind of short construction frames. And Canada has the same problem, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. Norway is actually warmer than Canada. Most people don't realize that. So we actually have some of the most wintry world. It's basically us and Russia. So we do actually have very short building time frames here as well. Uh, I think the big difference is, is we have an enormous amount of access to resources. So Europe, they have had actually, I mean, they have a horror store of colonization because basically their um, products and whatever um, uh, resources they had available to them was, was really strained by you know, the, the dense population that they had to go outside in the world, whereas Canada would have such an enormous amount of resources here people can be wasteful, they can sit, ship an extra foot of timber on their yeah. lambs because whatever, there's like, like millions of acres of untouched forests they'll just go a lot more trees down and nobody really pays for that stuff genuinely because the, you know it's going on government land or it's going into into like a resource management strategy that's highly subsidized by our governments. So
1: yeah, the labor is more expensive than the
2: uh, materials yeah. for sure. So the efficiencies I think you see in Northern Europe, definitely weather is one of them, but I think it's more of a lack of resources, immediately available resources that has made them have to become much more efficient. They also build with a mindset that's different than ours. So, you know, like Canada as an experiment of the country, is, you know, barely 180 years old. There's not a whole lot of structures that have been here for that entire 180 years, whereas Europe, like, you know, Families, young families, living in 400-500-year-old structures. There are thousands, thousands of those structures over there that are still serving the purpose. And so they can stomach uh, a little bit more investment in their in their structures because they know that the, that structure may very well be standing there for hundreds of years.
0: There is some bias to that, though, because the ones that aren't, that didn't last 400 years, aren't there anymore. To... True. That's <laughs> yeah. True, but I, I, I would tend to say that they're thinking about the uh, possibility it's going to stand that long they, Yeah, they may try to achieve A lot it. less generational thinking in North yeah. America than there is in Europe. That's the sad part about 3D printed construction for me. I might never get to see a 100 year old 3D printed house. <laughs>
2: well, how old are you now? 24. You're going to live to 124 and you can come stay at ours. It'll be there in 100 years. <laughs> for sure. Sure. <laughs> sure. Will you guys greet me? Maybe, maybe, maybe a doing, virtual uh, yeah, yeah. upload ourselves to the, uh, the touch screen that will uh, replicate your water. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jim will probably sprinkle my ashes in one of the outhouses out there or something. So
0: That's a unique thing to talk about. <laughs> no, you guys have your facility and it has its own, the STFU and the WTF. Can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> the, uh, the sewage treatment filtration unit and then the Water
2: treatment facility.
0: So how many units could you build on the land your facilities on?
2: Uh, We have enough water treatment right now for about 1,100 doors. Uh, The sewage treatment facility could probably handle about a quarter of that, but it's quite easy to build other sewage facilities around there.
0: So there's huge scalability from a real estate development perspective. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's about 400 acres of which probably 250 to 300 we set aside for just green space and mountain bike trails, snowboarding, skiing in the winter, um, uh, like access by foot. We won't, I don't think we'll ever put a chair It's a big part there. of the community living out here. Is the but green space. Um, yeah, about a kilometer and a half of waterfront, so we can do some really nice um, public domain stuff down on the water. So it's a really great opportunity to really give 3D printing a, a, a backdrop that's just a little bit more exciting than, say, industrial parks in Copenhagen or. Places in the middle of nowhere where the, the permitting allows for experimental structures to go on. You know, we're, we've got a little bit of a, of a, we're a little bit lucky on that one. That our competition doesn't have to, it doesn't get to utilize as easily. So
0: Yeah, to already have utilities in for thousands of potential units, that's pretty cool. It's pretty yeah. unique. There's a lot to look forward to.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's, it's just a, one It's one, one just one, well, one note too yeah, yeah. So we're
2: looking at places in the Netherlands for building like multifamily structures we're looking mm-hmm. at places in Dubai there's a bunch of
1: um, I guess pies and a bunch of different ovens on, yeah. on how this can uh, all completely different yeah. um, backdrop settings conditions right you know we're talking about in situ versus uh, you know in a controlled environment you know these kinds of uh, challenges we're taking on here we're considering you know we're thinking about taking